You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we'll pray together before we begin. Father, you are glorious and and great and holy and majestic. And we pray that we may see those attributes communicated to us today in the pages of Scripture. That we may understand how righteous you are and how good you are to provide salvation for a people whom you've called to yourself and called by your name. Open our eyes to those truths. Give us understanding this morning in this book of Ecclesiastes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is actually part two of what we looked at last week. We're looking at the second half of this passage that we started looking at in verses 15 to 18. And uh, this verses 19 to 22, which is our text for this morning, is a continuation of uh, what we did last week. And it is uh, connected not, not only in terms of its theme, but also its structure. And I want you to notice first the theme. Verse 19 speaks of wisdom and commends wisdom. And verse 20 speaks of righteousness and our lack of righteousness. And you'll notice in verse 15 where Solomon writes, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous and not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? And so there's a connection here between verses 19 and 22 with what comes before in terms of its theme, mentioning both righteousness and wickedness. As Solomon observed that the righteous sometimes perish in the righteous, and the, and the wicked sometimes prolong their life and their wickedness. And that last week we looked at that passage of Scripture, which I said is the most difficult passage in all of Ecclesiastes to interpret, and I stand by that today. And, I'm, and, and verse 19 to 22 is the answer to the objection that Solomon raises in verse 15 to 18. So it is connected not only in terms of its theme, but also its structure, as in verse 19 Solomon, uh, Solomon answers the criticism that is raised in verses 16 through 18. And I, I just want to remind you of the three possible interpretations I gave you last week just by way of review so that you can kind of be brought up to speed with where we're at. In verse 16, you'll remember, it, it seems to suggest that there is a problem with being too righteous and too wise. Psalm says it might lead to your ruin. And then in verse 17, it seems to suggest that a little bit of wickedness is probably a good thing. And then in verse 18, he seems to suggest that balancing righteousness and wickedness and having a little bit of both is good. Balancing folly and wisdom and having a little bit of both is a good thing. So that's a a difficult passage, and I suggested there are three ways of potentially understanding that. First, it might be that Solomon is simply here expressing his cynicism, that having commended wisdom, he immediately has to take it all back and go back on what he said in the previous 14 verses of chapter 7, that uh, he says wisdom is a good thing, but then he has to come back and say, maybe it's not that good after all. You might have too much of it, and it might ruin you. And then I suggested the second possibility is that when Solomon warns against too much righteousness and too much wickedness, or sorry, too much righteousness and too much wisdom, that what he is describing there is a pretended or self-righteousness, kind of a a feigned righteousness, an over-the-top type of righteousness, not really the true righteousness the Scripture would commend. And we talked about all of the issues that we would have with both of those possible interpretations. Then I suggested a third, and that is that Solomon here is giving voice to a potential objection that somebody might raise, having observed what 
he observes in verse 15. He observes in verse 15 that sometimes the righteous, though they live righteous lives, and the wise, though they live wise lives, will perish in their righteousness and their wisdom, and the wicked will actually prosper and prolong their lives in their wickedness and in their folly. And in the ancient world, making an observation like that, most people would have suggested, well, if you can perish either way, then it seems that the best approach would be to have a, a balanced approach to this and to kind of walk the middle of the road, as it were, and have a little bit of righteousness and a little bit of wickedness. And that in verses 16 to 18, Solomon is giving voice to that objection and that conclusion so that he might answer it in verses 19 through 22. And that, I think, is what he is doing. You'll notice in verse 16, he says, too much righteousness and wisdom might lead to your ruin. But then in verse 19, he answers that. And he says, no, it's, it's, that's not possible because wisdom strengthens a man more than 10 rulers in a city. And if you think it's possible to be too righteous, look at verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So you see how verse 19 and 20 answer verses 16, 17, and 18? That's what Solomon is doing. If you conclude from looking at the world and seeing that the wicked prosper and the righteous sometimes perish, if you think the answer to that is to walk down the middle and have a little bit of wickedness and a little bit of righteousness and sort of play it safe between the two and avoid the extremes, Solomon says that's, that's not right. Because wisdom is a good thing and the more you have, the better. And if you think it's possible for you to be too righteous, <laughs> you've missed the boat. There's not a righteous man on the face of the planet. not possible for you to be too righteous. And in fact, as we'll see, it's not even possible for us to be righteous, let alone too righteous. As if it were possible for us to be righteous at all, and Solomon would be warning us against being too righteous. So in keeping with our outline that we looked at last week, we saw he, he made this observation, this concerning phenomenon, verse 15, and then he gave kind of a common perspective, verses 16 to 18. So today we're going to look at a correct perspective that he offers us in verses 19 to 20, and then we'll look at the uh, a convincing proof in verses 21 to 22. So first, a, a correct perspective, verses 19 to 20. Let's read all four of these verses together. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. So verse 19 to 20 first, this correct perspective. Uh, Ecclesiastes is, is what we call wisdom literature. It belongs with Song of Solomon and, and Proverbs, and it's, it's uh, typical of ancient wisdom literature. And ancient wisdom literature typically presented wisdom as a good gift from a good God. If you have wisdom, as communicated to us in Scripture, if you have that kind of wisdom, it is a good gift. The book of Proverbs is a good and gracious gift from God to give to us. The book of Ecclesiastes, that type of literature is a good thing. And Solomon is in keeping with the, sort of that view of wisdom that is presented in ancient wisdom literature. And so in verse 19, he is actually answering the criticism of verse 16. Verse 16, you can have too much wisdom. Verse 19, no you can't, because wisdom strengthens a man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So Solomon gives an analogy here, and here's the analogy. A wise man who has wisdom is better than a city with ten good rulers. Now, let's understand what the city with ten good rulers is, and then you'll see how it sort of compares to wisdom. A city with ten good rulers would be a city with ten very wise, capable, able, strong, dignified, um, and, 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 and knowledgeable rulers. That would be a city with ten good rulers. That type of rule, those type of rulers over a city would make for a very strong city. Now, if you think that, that what Solomon is describing here is something like our city council, where we elect people to make decisions about which way the traffic runs in town, and, or so, 
just as an example, for instance, if you think that that's what Solomon has in mind, he's not describing those type of rulers. In the ancient world, cities were like islands unto themselves almost. A city would have a wall around it, a big, big uh, wall of stones. It would have gates and bars and lookout towers and strengths and defenses and all of that. The rulers of a city would be those men in the city who gave leadership to the city. See, our city council doesn't have to worry about securing the borders of our city. Our city council doesn't have to worry about raising an armed force to fend off invading hordes. But in those days, they had to do that. So you would need the most capable and able and knowledgeable men possible to lead a city. Now, we understand that because, of course, we only elect in our nation the most capable and able and, and wisest men to lead our nation, right? Or don't we? So a city with ten such rulers, listen, a city with two such rulers would be blessed beyond imagination. A city with ten such rulers, that type of strength and wisdom and courage and leadership ability, man, that would be, with ten rulers like that, that would be the strongest city in the world. Because most cities would be blessed to have one or two. Can you name 12 such men in all of Washington, D.C.? Can you name 12 such men? How rare it is? So imagine having 10 men overseeing a city like that. That would be a, that would be a place to live. So secure and safe and prosperous and, and, and blessed to have 10 such men. Wisdom does for a man in his own life, brings that type of of, of strength better than 10 rulers provide with all of their leadership to a city. It, it is a strengthening thing. Uh, Philip Graham Riken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes describes the benefit and blessing of wisdom to a man. Listen to this. He writes, Wisdom governs thoughts so that the wise person knows how to think about things in a God-centered way. Wisdom governs the will so that the wise person knows what choices to make in life. Wisdom governs speech so the wise person knows what to say and what not to say. Wisdom governs action so the wise person knows what to do in any and every situation. Take hold of wisdom and it will make you strong. That's good advice. And that's a good description of exactly how wisdom functions in the life of a believer. The book of Proverbs chapter 24 verses 5 and 6 says that a wise man is strong and a man of knowledge increases power. For by wise guidance you will wage war and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Now see again how he is describing the need for wise counsel and wise people leading battle and leading defenses and leading in a war. That type of wisdom gives strength to a people, strength to a city, and strength to an individual man. Solomon gives an example of this. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, just a page or two in your Bible. Look at Ecclesiastes 9, and, and here later on in chapter 9, he talks about wisdom again, and he gives an illustration kind of in keeping with what we're reading here in chapter 7. Chapter 9, verse 13. Also this, I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. See that? Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You see how he's commending wisdom there? Kind of gives an illustration of what we're talking about here. There's a, the city that is besieged by people outside of it. One poor wise man delivers the entire city. And what does that tell you? Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Wisdom makes a man strong. That's what Solomon's saying in verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So is it possible then to have too much wisdom? 
Have you ever heard of a city having too much strength, too much prosperity, too much comfort, too much convenience, too much security? Is that possible? If you had suggested that to them, they would have said that that's crazy to suggest that we could be too secure in our surroundings, that we could be too protected and too strong, too knowledgeable. So it is with wisdom. It's not possible to be too wise. That's what Solomon is saying. Verse Chapter 8 of Proverbs, verse 11, For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. Proverbs 16, 16, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Possible to be too wise? It's like saying a city could be too strong, or a city could be too safe. It's not possible. You wouldn't even talk like that because that's foolishness. Well, is it possible then to be too righteous, as Solomon sort of voiced in verse 16, hypothetically. It's possible to be too righteous. Verse 20. Verse 20. Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Therefore, being too righteous is not possible. This is, this statement in verse 20, is a universal condemnation of all men. Look at the universal language that is used in verse 20. There is not a single righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Now there's two elements here that Solomon is describing. Continually doing good and not sinning. Now these, these are two elements of, of sin that we typically refer to as sins of omission and sins of commission. And Solomon is describing both. There's not a single man on earth who continually does good. That is, he does not omit or forget or neglect to do the things that he ought to do. Neither is there a single man on earth who never sins. Now, we typically think of sin as being things that we commit. The law says, thou shalt not lie. And we have all lied. We are born liars with lying tongues, and we lie from our mother's womb. Some of the very first words and sentences that we speak are lies, and we struggle with telling the truth and being truthful all the way through our lives. Right? So that's a sin of commission. We commit the thing that we are told not to do. And so it is with stealing and blaspheming and, and uh, coveting and lying against our neighbor and committing sins of adultery and lust and murder and hatred and gossip and slander. All of the things that Scripture tells us not to do, we do those things. Those are sins of commission. But then there is on the other side, even if we could refrain, even if it were possible, it's not, but even if it were possible for us to not do all of the things or any of the things we are told not to do, if it were possible for us to do that, we would still fail and sin by omitting the things that we ought to do. For we are told to take care of the poor, to provide for others, to be generous in giving, to show love to our neighbor as ourselves, and to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the requirement. Those are the things that we ought to do. And when we fail to do that, we have violated the law by sinning, by omitting the things that we should do. So we have failed to do the things that we should, and we have done the things that we should not do. That is sins of omission and sins of commission. So look at verse 20. There's not a righteous man who continually does what is good. That is, he does all the things that the law says, these are the good things, do them. There's not a man who does this. Nor is there a man who never, ever sins. So we have violated both of those. We stand condemned. Universally speaking, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. And in fact, the language between Solomon here and Paul in Romans 3 is striking. Paul says in Romans 3, what then? Are we, that is, Jews, better than they, the Gentiles or the Greeks? Not at all, Paul says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It's not just what we do and what we don't do, but we are actually under and in a state of sin. We are born there, condemned because of what Adam did. So Paul goes on, as it is written, there is not a righteous, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not 
even one. And he is quoting there all the way through the Old Testament Scriptures. This is Paul's teaching. This is the universal teaching of all of Scripture. Psalm 143, verse 2. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. No man living is righteous. Psalm 14, verse 3. This is what Paul, this is what Paul quotes in Romans 3. Psalm 14, 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, verse 6. says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is to be placed on Christ. Solomon condemns all of humanity, not just here, but in two other occasions. And I'll give them to you. One of them is in his prayer for the temple at the temple dedication of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, when he is describing when, when God's people sin and then they repent and God will bless them for their repentance and returning back to the Lord, the Lord in keeping with the Old Testament covenant would shower them with blessings for that repentance. And Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, verse 46, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. He mentions that in his prayer. And then in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? Can anybody say that? Can anybody say, I am pure from sin? Anybody here? No, we can't do that, can we? We know that we have sinned. So, and, and here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says it in his preaching. So in his praying, in his Proverbs, and in his preaching, that's a good preachable three-point outline for you right there. In all of those venues, Solomon reminds us we are sinners, universally so, not a single individual among us who is pure and righteous. And so we stand condemned. Now, when Scripture describes or speaks of righteousness, it uses it in a few different ways. So let's, let's clarify this just in case there's any question. Three ways the Scripture uses the term righteous. The first, it uses the term righteous to describe somebody who is morally pure and perfect. Morally pure and perfect. That's how Solomon is using it here. There's none righteous. There is none who is morally pure and perfect. There is none... There's no man who has done everything that he ought to do, and there is no person who has not done anything that he is not supposed to do. We have violated the sins of omission, sins of commission. We have universally fallen. We are not morally pure. We are not perfect. All men have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not even one. So righteousness can describe somebody who is morally pure and morally perfect, who has never violated the law of God, and somebody who has is, who is always done those things that he ought to do. And by the way, in terms of using the word righteous in that manner, there's only one person that we could use that we could describe in that way. But Scripture also describes, uses the term righteous to describe imputed righteousness. Somebody who is righteous because righteousness has been granted to them or credited to them. So when we say, for instance, that Moses was a righteous man, that Noah was a righteous man, that Abraham was a righteous man, David was a righteous man, what are we describing? Are we saying that those men are righteous because none of them ever sinned and all they did was always and only what is good? They never committed sins of commission or omission? When we talk about them being righteous men, we're not describing their conduct or their morality or their perfection at all. In fact, we know that all of those men have sinned and did sin. What we are describing instead is a state or a condition before God that these men enjoy because righteousness was imputed to them. It was credited to their account. So Scripture says in Genesis and in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and righteousness was credited to his account. This is imputation. And this is what we mean when we describe ourselves as being in a righteous state. We are justified. On the basis of what Christ has done, by our faith, we are justified. That means we are righteous. Those who have trusted in Christ are righteous. So I can say to you, that I am a righteous man, 
Not because I have never sinned, but because Christ never sinned. I can say that not because I have done what is good, but because that Christ only did what was good. And not because my conduct right now is righteous, or my conduct this morning was righteous, but because Christ only and always did what was righteousness. So, in the courtroom of God, I stand innocent. And you, if you have trusted Christ for salvation, you stand innocent, uncondemned, cleared of all the charges against you, and declared in the courtroom of God completely righteous, not because of anything you have done, but because of what was done by another on your behalf. So this act of imputation is a two-way street. All of my sins were credited to Christ's account, and He bore the wrath that I deserve for all those sins because they were laid upon Him. And all the righteousness that He earned, all the credit He had for always obeying the Father and obeying the law perfectly, and for always doing good and for never sinning, all of that righteousness is credited to my account, listen, while I am still in a sinning state. At the moment of my repentance and faith, I am still at that moment a sinner because my faith is not pure enough and my repentance is not good enough. And so even at the moment of my belief, all the pure and perfect and infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes mine in the courtroom of God. So that in the eyes of God, He sees me not only as not guilty, but actually as perfectly righteous. That's imputed righteousness. So the Bible uses righteous to describe moral perfection. Imputed, imputed or positional righteousness. And third, the Bible uses righteous to the term righteous to describe somebody who pursues or practices righteousness. And this is actually the fruit of imputation. This is the results of imputed righteousness. So that today, when I do something that is righteous or good in God's sight, and I do it with a pure motivation, an act of service or love to Him, I fulfill the law, I mortify sin, or I do a righteous deed. We might describe an individual who is practicing or pursuing righteousness, but that practice and pursuit of righteousness only comes and only is possible because they have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. So that now in the power of the Holy Spirit, they can actually practice righteousness. And you cannot be imputed the righteousness of Christ until you realize before that, I am not righteous. So you see how all three of these go together? It is used to describe a moral perfection, which we are not. And once we realize that, we pursue a Savior who is morally perfect and righteous, and we can have righteousness imputed to us on the basis of faith. And then we are able to do and practice righteous deeds only because of what Christ has done and the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. So those are the three ways that the Bible uses the term righteous. How is Solomon using it here when he says that there is none righteous, not one? He's using it in terms of the first one, moral perfection. There is nobody who is morally perfect, save only Jesus Christ, who lived 1,500 years after Solomon, he is the only one whom we could use, whom we could describe in that way as being perfectly righteous in all that he said and in all that he did. When Paul speaks of being righteous in the sight of God in Philippians chapter 3, he describes having a righteousness that is not his own, but one based upon faith in Jesus Christ. Paul lived a life where he was pursuing that moral perfection, pursuing that perfect standing before God on the basis of his works. And so he brags in Philippians chapter 3, I was, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was raised in the law by Gamaliel. I had all of this going for me. In, in terms of the, the law, I was like a Pharisee. I was blameless in the eyes of men. In terms of zeal, I persecuted the church of God. All these things that he was, he was heaping up. I've done this. I've kept this law. I've done that. I've been this righteous. I, I did this good thing. He was trusting in all of that. But then Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All those things that I thought were, were gain to me, I threw them on the dung pile and instead exchanged my hope in that for my hope in Christ 
so that I might have a righteousness, and then Paul says, a righteousness not based upon the law and my keeping of it, but a righteousness based upon Christ, His righteousness, which God gives to me on the basis of faith. Do you see that big exchange, that imputation? Casting aside all my hopes and my own righteousness, I instead wanted what Christ had, His righteousness. This means that as believers, our righteous standing before God is not something that you and I can affect by any lack of doing a good deed or by any sin we commit. We cannot tarnish that righteousness because the righteousness that we have before God is not our righteousness. It's not our righteousness to tarnish. It can't be tarnished. It belongs to another. It is imputed or credited to us. And Christ is that righteous one. He is the pure, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who kept all of the law perfectly. He never violated the law. He always did the Father's will. He went around doing good to everybody, healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, casting out demons and doing signs and wonders and doing good to people, feeding the hungry. He did that. He did all of those perfect and righteous deeds on our behalf so that His obedience can be credited to us as if we have done that. That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just that I may have my sins forgiven, but I can be seen in the sight of God and in the courtroom of God as righteous. That's what we need. And that's what verse 20 should drive us to. There's none righteous. Verse 20, there's none who continually does good and who never sins, save only Jesus Christ. So the question then is, as sinners, how can I stand before a just and holy God on judgment day? Two ways. Clothed in the rags of my own self-righteousness, my own good deeds, my own things that I think are going to give me credit before God, or I can throw all of that behind me and trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who trust in the rags of their own self-righteousness will not stand before that God, because that is no righteousness at all. So that is the proper perspective on righteousness and wisdom that Solomon gives us there in verses 19 to 20. Now I want you to notice a convincing proof that he offers. Now do you need, this is verse 21 and 22, do you need proof that no man is righteous? Do you need proof that no man continually does good and never sins? Well, if you do, verse 21, do not take seriously all the words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise many times have cursed others. Now see, this is evidence not only of how wisdom strengthens us, what we'll see in just a moment. This is evidence that we have all sinned in how we have used our words, right? You have taken what your servant says in such a way and then you realize you should not do that. Then you realize in verse 22 that you likewise have cursed other people. So we are all condemned even by our mouth. This is an illustration of just how unrighteous we are. Number one, that we get upset when people speak ill of us. And then that having gotten upset that people speak ill of us, we also do the same thing to other people. And so, so we respond wrongly, and then we do the very thing that upsets us. So Solomon is describing here in verse 20, 21 and 22, not taking seriously all the words that are spoken, that is, the things that you hear, lest you hear your servant cursing you, you hear somebody say something about you that really was not intended for you to hear. Has there anybody here who has never had that happen to you? You haven't overheard something on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the door. You were in the room when you shouldn't have been in the room and you heard somebody talking about you. You picked up when you were a kid the, the phone that everybody in the neighborhood shared on the same street and you heard somebody talking about you and you covered it up so that you could listen to what everybody else was saying about you. Or you read an email that wasn't intended for your eyes or you saw a Facebook post that you shouldn't have seen. Or somebody sent a text to you that was intended for somebody else. This happens, doesn't it? We hear that somebody said something about us. Somebody tells us, usually happens third or fourth hand. 
Somebody told me, so-and-so told me that so-and-so said this about you, that you believe this or that you do this or that you practice this or that you went here or that this is something that you normally do. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Everybody does? We've all had that happen? And how do we respond? Typically the polar opposite of what Solomon suggests. First we get hurt by it. Wow, I can't believe that person would say that about me. I can't, I'm, I'm hurt and offended. And we start to tear up and cry. Why do we do that? Because our pride kicks in and we say to ourselves, I can't believe that that person doesn't think as highly of me as I think of me. Because obviously if they thought as highly of me as I think of me, they would never say that about me behind their back, right? And so then our pride makes us sort of be indignant and then we get angry. I, the audacity of that individual to say something like that about me. And we get angry and then that destroys our relationship and it hurts people's feelings, and we get upset, and we say, I'll never have that person over to my house again. I'm never going to send that person a Christmas card ever again, and the relationship is ruined, all because we overheard something that we weren't intended to hear. Now listen, Solomon is not excusing us speaking ill of others because others have spoken of us, right? Nor is he suggesting that because other people have spoken ill of us, that we are justified or excused for speaking ill of others. You could read it that way in verse 21 and 22. Don't take seriously all the words which are spoken that you hear, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. You have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Now you've done this. That's what he's saying. But he's not justifying it. He's not saying you can curse others because they cursed you. He's saying in terms of of dealing with this issue, you realize that, and, and the phrase you realize is kind of a colloquialism of the day. It's translated in the ESV as, your conscience bears witness to the fact. Your conscience testifies to this. It was sort of a colloquialism that said, your heart is telling you that you have done this to other people. Now we ignore that and we get mad and indignant and prideful. I can't believe they would say something like that about me. Ignoring the fact that all of us have done the same thing about somebody else, right? That is what he means in verse 22 when he says, you have also realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. This is not a one-off for us, is it? How many times have we said something about somebody else, even a best friend, that we would never want them to hear what we said about them, or about their family, or about their kids, or about their job, or their character, or whatever it is? Blaise Pascal once said that if all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the whole world. I think that's wisdom. Right? Now, it's not that it's not that we're justified in saying these things about other people. That's that's not Solomon's point. Solomon's point is we are not really not justified to take offense at this, knowing that we have done the same thing to others. That's his point. We're really not justified in getting offended at it. So so what should we do? We should let it roll off our back. Is what we should do. If you want to make a big deal out of this, if you want to make an issue out of it, then you're just asking to be hurt. You're asking to be disappointed in people. You're asking to have your relationships fall apart. You're asking to lose friends. You hear somebody saying something that was not intended for you to hear. Solomon says, don't pay attention to it. Don't take it seriously. Don't take it seriously. How many times have we said something about somebody else that we would never have wanted them to hear? And how would we justify it? We would say, well, it was a moment of weakness. I really didn't believe that about that individual. Well, then, then assume the same thing of them. You hear somebody saying something about you, assume that they would never say that to your face and that they really don't believe that about you. That's much easier, isn't it? And then the relationship can stay intact and you can remain friends and you can just blow it off as, as something said in a careless moment. 
and, and something that you don't really take offense at and you don't take seriously and, and just forget about it. Just forget about it. I had a friend one time who, who every time something was said about him or he, he felt like he needed to chase that down and make it right and make it correct and confront this individual. And if, that is, if that's your goal in life, you will never be happy because that's all you will do. It's all you will do because people say things about us all the time. And you just have to get used to it. You have to deal with it. And you just have to say, oh, say la vie, whatever. I'm just not going to care about it. Matthew Henry and I'm going to quote this, but I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase or, or put it into modern English for us because with all the these and the thous and the thou shalt nots and all of that, it gets kind of confusing to the modern ear. So here's what Matthew Henry writes. Vex not that... No, I told you I was going to, I was going to uh, translate it. Hold on a second. <laughs> Do not vex yourself at, at men's peevish reflections upon you or their suspicions of you, but be like a deaf man that does not hear them. Do not be solicitous can't even translate that. Do not be solicitous. Solicitous. There we go. Do, do not be solicitous or inquisitive to know what people say of you. If they speak well of you, it'll feed your pride. If they speak ill of you, it'll stir up your passion. See, therefore, that you approve yourself to God and your own conscience, and then do not care what men say about you. That is sound wisdom. Make sure that you stand before God with a clean conscience, and that what you have done is right before God, and then do not care what men say about you. This is how wisdom strengthens a man. See, this is wise counsel. This makes a man strong. When you can stand and you can hear somebody say something about you, and you just don't care, that's better than being constantly offended, isn't it? That's better than constantly walking around with a tear streaming down your face, hurt about what somebody else said about you, vexing over it, being angry over it, brooding over it, being bitter over it for years. If you can just be the type of person who lets that run off your back, that's, that is strength that comes from wisdom. Because a wise man knows how to handle that. Oh well. That's wisdom. Oh well. I don't care. I'm still going to love that person. I'm going to still respond to them with graciousness and kindness. And I'm just going to deal with it. And I don't care. That makes a man strong. Stronger than ten rulers can provide for a city. Because a wise man knowing how to respond and how to think about that, he's not shaken by what other people say to him. He just walks with his head up before God in the honesty of his conviction and doesn't care what others say. That is how wisdom strengthens a man. So verses 21 and 22 do two things. Number one, they show us that we all have sinned. There's none righteous. Because we have all done what James 3 describes. We have used our tongues to bless God and to curse men. And so we are guilty. Verses 21 and 22 demonstrate our guilt. And second, verses 21 and 22 demonstrate the strength that wisdom provides. Because a wise man is not going to be shaken by that. He's just going to live his life. So that's what Paul Solomon is saying. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been good to us and gracious and kind to us beyond what we deserve by giving, the right, giving us the righteousness of Christ Father, we have all sinned and we stand condemned by the testimony of Scripture in verse 20 and other passages as well. There is none righteous, not one. Only Christ, who lived and died for sinners, was perfectly righteous in all He said and all He did. And as we observe the Lord's Supper today, we pray that You would be glorified through our reflection upon that imputed righteousness that You have given to us through Your Son. Thank You for not giving to us what we deserve. Thank You for treating us with grace and treating us as we do not deserve to be treated by giving us life and providing us for salvation in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.